any of the children that are here this morning. We're glad to have them down. In fact, there's my daughter sitting right down there. It's good to see you, Hope. And no, you don't have to work in the nursery today. Sit here and be with us, okay? We're glad, we're glad that you're with us. If there's any of the children who go out this way, but let's then also let's pray as we get ready to hear God's word. Father, we thank you that we could be here today to hear the scriptures that you've given to us. We thank you that books I've written maybe 3,000 years ago still speak to us today. And we ask that you would give us the opportunity to hear your good word today. That you would be working in us, you'd be working through us, and that we would be coming to know you in a significant way. Lord, you would, you would be working with us in a way where we would understand your scriptures and that we would be following you. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us, the way you've been at work in so many ways. And we ask that today as we come to this passage, and a little kind of strange at times, help us to be able to move back 3,000 years ago and to see what the struggles and the people these people had. And what we'll see, we know, Lord Jesus, is that nothing's changed. We still struggle. But we thank you for the new covenant. We thank you for what you've done through the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us as we come to your pa this passage this morning, we ask. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were with us in the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been doing a series that is going on in 1 Samuel. If you have a Bible, I invite, you in, I invite you to go ahead and look at that. And what we're going to be doing, some of you got an email from me this week that said, uh, we're going to be looking at chapters 9 and 10 of 1 Samuel, but I'm going to be going rather quickly over chapter 9. It's a, one way, it seems like a rather little strange story all about donkeys. Uh, it's not normally the thing you might expect on something like this, but it's about a guy who's going out to look for, for, uh, looking for donkeys, and it leads up to whom's going to become a king. In fact, we ended up last week, if you remember, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, the very last verse said this. It said, Then Samuel told the men of Israel, Each of you go back to your city. And so they had this thing where they talked about what God had done for them and all the things that had happened, and they had demanded that there would be a king. And so what we see it's happened here is we pick up the story just to give a little bit of an idea of what's going on in terms of the passage from last week for those who may not have been here. Just a very, very quick review. You might remember that we, looked, we, we saw something really positive in the weeks before, and that's where there was a turning back to the Lord. After they hit bottom, they were ready to respond to God, and they did. And they had a victory of a battle at Mizpah, and they won. And there you had that famous phrase of an Ebenezer, a term using a, a stone a stone of help, a stone of help. And that became a famous uh, passage in Christian things. And then we talked about peace in Israel. Things seem to be doing well. They seem to be on a better curve after being down at the bottom for quite a while. But there were struggles as well. It turned out that Samuel's own sons were losers, just like Eli's son had been losers. And one thing that the people wanted, they wanted a king. God had been their king for all this time, but all the people around them had kings. Ammonites had kings. Moabites had kings. Canaanites had kings. Why can't we have a king? It's kind of like the thing with kids at Christmas time. Billy's got a, you know, Billy's got a bicycle. Susie's got a bicycle, but I don't have a bicycle. 
And it's kind of like with them. Everybody else has got kings. How come we can't have a king? Well, for one very good reason, because God was their king. But basically what they're saying is, God, you're not enough. And so we see this is building up into this whole situation that's coming here. There's a warning from Samuel saying, you, you, you want to think twice about this. If you do this, you're going to see how the kings can do a lot of things for you, but they can do a lot of things against you as well. And the people, though, reject the Lord, and they said they want a human king. They want a king that's going to help them out to do what they need to do. And so what we've got in this passage as we go on, and, and hopefully it's going to be working, is going on where it talks about this whole passage. Now turn with me, if you would, to, uh, to chapter 9, verse 1. In this passage, what we're seeing is I'm seeing that the, the thing is failing here, right here after all that work on it, but that's okay. Oh, here we go. There we go. Thank you. I saw that. Thank you, Rachel, too. But in this passage, what we're going to see, first we're going to go kind of rather quickly over this section because it is a little bit strange. I mean, here's a section that's dealing with donkeys and all what's going on. But notice, if you would, in chapter 9, it starts off this way. There was an influ influential man named Benjamin named Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekothah, son of Aphanath, son of a Benjamite. Now, aren't those great names for your children, grandchildren? If you're thinking of names, right, there's a good one. He had a son who was named Saul. This is where we pick up the story of Saul. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than these. He stood a head tall than everyone else. It's interesting, there have been studies done over the years that people who are tall usually get better chances of getting jobs and things like that. Now, if you're short, I'm sorry. I didn't have anything to do with this. I'm saying it's just what studies have shown. And so here's a really good-looking guy. He's sharp. Things look good. And he said he was impressive among the Israelites that he stood a head taller than anyone else. Now, one day it says the donkeys of Saul's father's Kish, they wandered off. Kish said to his son, son, take one of the attendants with you and go looking for the donkeys. That was really interesting to me because, I mean, we think of donkeys and not much of something important, but... Donkeys were crucial back in that time for travel, for work. One by, I like what one guy said. He said, donkeys are kind of like what jeeps were for America. In other words, they were, they were sturdy. They worked hard. They, they did all kinds of stuff. They were crucial. They said, that's the way donkeys were in the ancient world. And so if you lose your donkeys, you're in big trouble. They're very, worth, they, they're, they're very costly. So anyways, he said, take one of the attendants with you and go looking for the donkeys. And so what you see in this passage here, in fact, I'm going to go in here, is I'm going to read this a little bit rather than go through the slides because I want to just give you a little bit idea of it and we're going to skip through part of it. If you notice what happens in verse 4, Saul and his attendants went through the hill country of Ephraim and then through the region of Shalashah, but they did not find them. And what we see in this story, we're going to go really quickly, is the fact that they started looking and find, going, trying to find these stupid donkeys. And all this is going on. And all that's going on at the same time here, they start saying, you know what? We can't find them. And somebody said, I know we can get a seer. A seer is like a prophet, but somebody who can divine where something is. In other words, he could get it through God by finding out and letting him know where they are. So they go looking for this seer. And while they're looking for him, they say, you know, where is he? And they say, well, you need money to pay the guy. And he says, well, I don't have any money. Well, somebody gives him some money, and they go. And so they're going to, there they could go, so they could go to the city. 
and they could get an opportunity to be able to find out where the lost donkeys were. And so what we have as you go on in verses, when we come to down to, let's say, verse, if you look at verse 14, it talked in about how they went into the city. Now let's pick it right there. Saul and his attendants were entering the city when they saw Samuel coming toward them on his way to the high place. So now notice what's going on here. Saul has not met Samuel at this point. And it seems like they've been on a crazy kind of walking from place to place looking for the missing guys, really the missing, the missing uh, animals, obviously. It said, at this time tomorrow, he said, excuse me, now the day before Saul's arrival, the Lord had informed Samuel, at this time tomorrow, this is God speaking to Samuel, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him as ruler over my people Israel. He will save them from the hand of the Philistines because I've seen the affliction of my people for their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, excuse me, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, here is the man I told you about. He will rule over my people. Saul approached Samuel in the gate area and said, would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Samuel said. Go up ahead of me to the high place and eat with me today. When I send you off in the morning, I'll tell you everything that's in your heart. As for the donkeys that wandered away three days ago, eh, don't worry about them. They've been found. And who does all Israel desire but you and your father's family? So here you've got Saul in a strange situation. He's in this strange situation where he's going like, what are you doing? Why are you spending all this time with me? Why are you talking to me about these things? In other words, in, the, in our world today, we often have people that are they're goers and they're getters and they're trying to get to the top. Well, here's a guy that doesn't want to be on the top. And he doesn't want to be at the top of all the, uh, of the corporation. And it's like, why does this guy have an interest in me? Yeah, I'm tall. That's good. But notice what we get in verse 21. Saul responded to him saying this way, I'm not a Benjamin. I'm, I'm, excuse me, I am not a Benjaminite from the small, from, am I not a Benjaminite from the smallest of Israel's tribes? Isn't my clan the least important of all the clans of the Benjamite tribe? So why have you said something like this? In other words, this seems to be getting weirder all the time. I mean, you know, I'm going out here trying to look for donkeys, and this guy is talking about kingship. Now notice if you would, if we're going to drop all the way down here to this next section, chapter 10. Look down with me, if you would, chapter 10, because what goes on with this section here, he talks about the fact that he invites him to a nice party, and he gives him a big hunk of meat, and everything seemed to be going well. But what happened, verse, we'll go to chapter 9, verse 27. But as they were going down to the edge of the city, Saul said, Samuel said to Saul, tell the attendant to go ahead of us, but you stay for a while, and I'll reveal the word of God to you. So the attendant went on. Now here we come to chapter 10, verse 1. And it said, Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on Saul's head, kissed him, and said, Hasn't the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Today when you leave me, you'll have two men at Rachel's grave at Zelah in the land of Benjamin. And so what you have going on here, it's like, whoa, whoa, what is all this? You know, I got like olive oil on my head. Why are you doing this? Did I ask for this? No, he didn't. He said, here's what Samuel said. Here's what I want you to do. You're going to proceed from here until you get to the Oka Tabor. That's a long way away. Just go. Three men are going to, from, uh, are going to God at Bethel. They'll meet you there. 
One's bringing three goats, one bringing three loaves of bread, and one bringing a skin of wine. And this seems really strange. It's like, is this some kind of game? I go here and you get a tag and it gives you a clue over to the other place you go to? It's like, what is this that we're traveling around, seeing all these different things? And so what we have in this passage is, he said, listen, they will ask you how you are, and they'll give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. But it says, but after that, you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrisons. Now, what's odd here is the question, why? I mean, that's who they've been fighting all this time. He said, you'll go to the Philistine garrison, but you didn't tell us what to do. Do we attack them? Do we wave at them? Do we fight with them? He doesn't tell them. Just said, go there. And you have this situation going, all right, I'm going to go here. Now I'm going to go there. I mean, it, what, what's happening to me here? I mean, I didn't ask for this, and yet they keep, they keep asking me to do all these crazy kind of things. Now notice this. And it talks about what's going on in this passage here. As it goes on in the next phrase, it says this, the spirit of the Lord will control you, and you will prophesy with them and notice this phrase, you will be transformed into a different person. That's a very unusual verse for the Old Testament, but it's a very important one. In some ways, it's given us a clue of what we're going to expect happens when Christ comes and gives the Holy Spirit to the believers. But it's saying, here in the time of the Old Testament, before everybody got the spirit who knew God. It's saying, here at this point, this and something's going to happen that you're going to be a different person. Not like you're going to be turned into a donkey or something, but I mean, there's going to be something significantly different about you because what you're about to experience. In fact, there's going to be a working of the Holy Spirit in your life in such a significant way that you're going to be realized that something big has happened to you at that point. So he said, you'll be transformed into a different person. And he said, listen, Saul, when these signs have happened to you, do whatever your circumstances require because God is with you. Now remember, Saul has no desire for this. He doesn't desire to do anything more of this. He wants to stay with his parents, I'm sure. God says, no, here's what you're going to do. So notice this. Afterwards, go ahead of me to Gilgal. I'll come to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice fellowship offerings. Wait seven days till I come to you, and I'll show you what to do. Now, when Saul turned around to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and all these sons came about on that day. Notice this. This is a second kind of confirming experience for him. He said he turned around to leave Samuel. God changed his heart which is a strange kind of phrase, but it's saying something's happened to him. He's not the same guy that he was just a few days before. And it's interesting because we're seeing now things in the Old Testament that are going to be seen in, in a great passage, I mean, in a great way in the New Testament. But this has kind of given us a preview of what God can do even in the Old Testament era. So notice, if you would, in this next passage. So when Saul and his attendant arrived at Gibeah, a group of prophets met him there. Now notice this. Then the Spirit of God took control of him, and he prophesied among them. It's like, whoa. Prophets who, had, who could do that, that was, they were kind of rare. And it's saying, now wait a minute. You're tall. You're sharp. Things are looking good. You've been anointed. And now you too seem to be having the same gifts that some of these prophets had. And it's saying, does this seem like maybe God is doing something in your life? 
And I imagine he's going, no, nope, I don't think so. Well, maybe he did. Maybe he realized something really strange, but something wonderful was happening. Everyone who knew him previously and saw him prophesy with the prophets asked one another, what has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? In other words, what's happened to this guy? Things have changed dramatically for him. Now notice if you would. So Samuel summoned the people to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the Israelites, this is what the Lord of God Israel says. Now notice this phrase, I brought Israel out of Egypt and I rescued you from the power of the Egyptians and all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today, now this, notice this verse, we're going to come back to it in just a couple minutes. But today, you've re, this is God speaking, you've rejected your God who saves from all your troubles and afflictions. For you said, you must set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourself before the Lord by your tribes and clans. In other words, you still want a king, right? Yes, we want a king. Are you sure? Positive. You already have a king. We don't want him. You don't want God as your king? No, we want a king like everybody else. And so he said, okay, line them all up, and let's see what we got here. So he said, they had them line up by your tribes and clans. Samuel had all the tribes of Israel come forward, and the tribe of Benjamin was selected. Like, what a surprise. Maybe God had something to do with that. Then he had the tribe of Benjamin come forward by its clans, and the Matrite clan was selected. Another big surprise. This keeps pointing to one person by the name of Saul. And then it says in the next one, finally, Saul, son of Kish, was selected. But when they searched for him, they couldn't find him. They again inquired of the Lord, has the man come here yet? The man replied, yeah, he's hidden among the supplies. This is not a great way to start a kingship. Can you imagine that? Here is our king. Where is he? I, I saw him hiding behind the boxes. Like, you're kidding me, right? We want some really go-getter guy who's going to lead us against the Philistines, the Ammonites, and all the ice people. Here's our man. Where is he? I don't know. Oh, he's over here. He's hiding. If I was God, I would, I would be chuckling. Okay, you, really, you got the guy you wanted, right? Huh? Does this look good to you? Now think about this. Think about how gracious God is all this. I mean, it's like, okay, you decided you didn't want me. But look at this. Here is the one that is. But you know, in one sense, we'll come back to it. Let me show you this. Come to this verse. So they ran and they got Saul from there. And when he stood among the people, he stood a head taller than all, anyone else. So Samuel told all the people, do you see the one the Lord has chosen? There's no one like him among the entire population. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Samuel proclaimed to the people the rights of kingship. He wrote them on a scroll. He placed them in the presence of the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home, which is interesting. Rather than saying, let's stay here, let's build an army, let's start fortifications, it's like, okay, hope you had a good time here, go home. It's like, really? A king ought to be leading the people and to start building nation. But instead, here's the guy that was hiding behind the boxes. Now notice what happens here. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and brave men whose hearts God had touched went with him. So now he does have some folks that are following him. By the way, Gibeah, if you can see it, there is not far from Jerusalem. I can't remember. I think, I think it's like 20 miles north from Jerusalem where this is taking place. But notice this. This gives us kind of a bad omen at the end of the passage. But some wicked men said, 
well, how can this guy save us? I mean, that's a good question. When the man that you all wanted is hiding, I mean, is this a good way to start? So they despised him, and they didn't bring him a gift. Usually, if you had a person becoming a gift, you would bring your gift to him, and you'd tell him how, how much you're going to support him. But they didn't even bring him a gift. But Saul said nothing. I mean, you would think he'd even say, okay, guys, I understand that you don't think maybe I'm the best person for king, but here's what I'm going to do, and here's my platform, and I want you, you know. It's none of that. He says, uh, everybody go home. Is that it? Yeah. And no wonder these guys are saying, I don't know about this. But this is what everybody wants, right? That's exactly what we want. Now, notice this passage, you would. There's a lot of different angles in this passage. I mean, it, goes, it starts off in a strange way with, you know, here you've got donkeys being chased. And now you've got the donkey guy, the guy's chasing the donkeys, is now going to be the king. And he is not maybe the greatest person you ever thought he was. But there's two things I want you to think about in terms of that passage. And it's a little strange. But what it's telling us is saying, what does this say about the character of God in this? And here's what I want you to think about for a minute. And the way our God works with us. The character of God that I think you see is so interesting here. As it goes along here, it's dealing with the mercy of God. I don't know about you, and I'm not pretending that I am God in any way at all, but if I was God, and we'd been through all this, when God had, if I was God and I'd you know, got these people through the Red Sea, I got them over to a promised land, I gave them everything they wanted, they got food to eat, I did all this for them, and then they said, we don't like you anymore. I mean, what would you say? Many would say, you know, really? Okay, all right, I'm out of here, I'm done. I ain't messing with you again. And what's interesting in this passage as I hear they've just said to God, we don't want you. We want a human king that we can see and touch and see the battles that he, he wages for us. And yet, in spite of rejection by his own people, God is merciful. Look at this passage right here. It says, at this time tomorrow, this is going back in 1 Samuel 9, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin anoint him uh, ruler over, notice this, over my people, Israel. I love that phrase because it's saying, you know what? They, they fired me, basically. They don't want me. But you know what? They're still my people. And they're going to need me. And rather than just close the door and leave them in their own struggles, I'm going to still care for them. And I'm still going to provide for them, even though I think this is a foolish, stupid thing that they did. And so this passage is interesting. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will save them from the land of the Philistines. There's a graciousness there, even saying, you know, it shouldn't be this way. But I will never give up with my people. You can reject me, but I'm not rejecting you. That is a great passage. It said, for I have seen the affliction of my people, and their cry has come to me. So one thing when we think about what do we think about the nature of God, we think about one, about his mercy. Here's a quote. Many of you know the person Thomas Watson. He was a Puritan writer. I love this phrase. He said, God is more willing to pardon than to punish. Mercy does more multiply in him than sin in us. Mercy is his nature. 
What a merciful God we have. If God just slammed us every time we made a mistake, we'd be nothing. And think how gracious he has been to us. So here in a time of struggle, when they're coming to now having a king, it's saying, guess what? God is still caring for his people. You have rejected me, but I am not rejecting you. The second one that's no, I want you to think about here is this one. And it is this. There's a passage we just read. It said, at this time tomorrow, he said, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him as ruler over my people. We just went over this one. But he's saying the point, they are my people. But we look at the character of God in the second one. It's this one. It's that word providence. Now, I'd be interested if we asked how many, of, well, maybe, I better not. How many of you maybe used the word providence within the last week? Anybody used the word providence in the last week? Maybe? I'm guessing that most of us don't use that word that often. And yet providence is one of the most special things in God's creation in the world that he's given us. And to be honest with you, a lot of people are a little nervous about the word providence. Because it seems like, well, wait a minute, if God is really at work and he knows what we're doing and ultimately he's going to do what he wants us to do, and this is, aren't we just kind of like robots, you know, him telling us what to do, and we're losing our freedom? It's not that at all. But it's saying God in his providence can work his work through people who are still making real choices, but yet ultimately God is the one who is caring for them and providing for them. One of the writers put it this way. He said, his definition. Providence, then, is the sovereign, divine, superintendence of all things, guiding them toward their divinely predetermined end in a way that's consistent with their created nature, all to the glory and praise of God. That's a mouthful, but it is a good statement. Providence, then, is the sovereign, divine superintendence of all things, guiding them toward their divinely predetermined end in a way that's consistent with their created nature. You're a person. You've got choices. You make real choices. All, but it's all to the glory and praise of God. When I think about this, I think, you know what? I'm so glad that we've got a God of great providence. I wouldn't want to be out there alone. And yet God is saying, I am here, and I'm going to work it out to your glory. Roger Williams, 18, uh, 1636, came from England. He was a Baptist, um, nonconformist, not, couldn't stay in, the, in England's church anymore. And he came here to, the, to um, New, New England, and of course he wanted to start a new place where there could be freedom of, of religion, not just for Baptists, but for any kind of freedom of religion. And of course it became very famous for that. But it is interesting, when it came time to name the new place that they had along the coast, he said it's going to be called Providence. It's God's providence that has taken us in a small boat across the Atlantic Ocean to bring us to this place. It is providence that's kept me alive, where some of the Puritans that were already there would talk about killing you if you weren't part of their type of church. And it's providence that's going to have to lead us all along the way in this new journey. And he had a very high view of providence, of knowing we thank God and the providence of God that he works for us. And of course, the Apostle Paul picks that up in Romans chapter 8 and talks about the providence of God. In this passage, what we see, whoops, excuse me, went too far. In this passage, we see two things about the character of God. We see his mercy 
and we see his providence. And yet that was 3,000 years ago. And the same mercy that God showed them 3,000 years ago, he's showing to us right now. The same providential care he has for us as individuals, as Grace Redeemer, as a people, as a church. That's the same God that we are worshiping 3,000 years later. And it's because of that we can come with such confidence to God to know that he's with us. He'll never, ever leave us in, de in despair. And we can trust in him fully. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for what it says. Father, it's an unusual passage. Looking back nearly 3,000 years, and yet here it is, Lord, a passage that reminds us again that you are far more merciful than we could ever imagine and that your providential care for us is absolutely amazing. We would ask that you'd be with us, help us as we now draw close to the table where you remind us again of the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ that we might have freedom, we might have life. And we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.